Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our lead pastor, Chris Figueretti, for this week's message. Well, hello and welcome to the Vineyard, everyone. Uh, We are in our series in Mark, and if you brought your Bible today, I hope that you did. If you have a paper Bible, I want you to open up to Mark chapter 2 and put your finger there. If you brought a digital Bible today, you go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 20 in verse 8. That's where we're going to start. We'll be coming back to Mark chapter 2 in just a few minutes. Now, Mark chapter 2, Jesus is uh, having some interactions with the religious leaders around something called the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is part of their Old Testament law, and that's why we're going back to Exodus. Exodus is the second book in the scriptures, or in the Bible, after Genesis, and that's where we're going to start. So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. This is what it says. It says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now, Sabbath basically means a day of rest. It's a day off. God gave his people as part of the law, and this this is part of the Ten Commandments, actually. It's the Fourth Commandment. God gave Israel 613 commandments, but... But the top 10, we call the top 10 commandments. We went over this this summer during our series on the 10 commandments. And this is the issue of Sabbath or a day of rest. It was intended to be a gift to the people of Israel. The people around them were uh, working, all the, the cultures around them were working seven days a week. Uh, and so were the Israelites. They were 400 years in slavery working seven days a week. Uh, and under this idea that you have to keep working if you're going to make it, right? I mean, kind of a fear-driven thing, or if you want to get ahead, you got to work harder to get ahead. And God didn't want his people under that kind of compulsion, that, that psychosis. He wanted them to learn faith. So he gives them this day of rest, and it is a gift to them. It, it goes on. It says... Um, On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. This was so important to God that he gave us an example in creation. He worked for six days and he took a seventh day to rest. Now, why is this law important? Why would God give his people this particular rule to follow? And, and, and there are several reasons why. One, it was a distinctive. They, they, God didn't want them being exactly like the people around them. He wanted them to live differently. And this was one of the ways that they could live differently. He wanted them to be free. And part of the purpose of the Sabbath was just to break the tyranny of fear over their lives. Like, if I don't work all the time, I'm not going to make it. 
But what the people of God found out and really what the promise of God is in the midst of all of this is that you can do more with less. You can work six days and with God's blessing and God's work in your life with some rest and some focus on your spiritual development and your focus on him, you're going to go further in six than everybody else is going in seven. And what happens is as you do this experientially, you begin to understand not just an idea but for, through experience that God's in control and God's got your life and there's a freedom that comes with that you live different you sleep better at night you go through life differently during the day part of the reason God gave his people this law is because he designed us and he knows how our bodies work how our minds work and we were designed uh, with a seven-day cycle in mind and a day of rest every seven days. Your body, your mind, and your heart work better if you do this. And like I said, God demonstrated it for us. He, he rested on the seventh day. And his promise to us is that we will have plenty if we will trust him. It's a way to prioritize God in our lives. Now, uh, we see this, and I've used this example before, but it's the greatest example that there is, modern-day example that there is, and it's, it's, it's the example of Chick-fil-A. Uh, the average McDonald's restaurant does about $2.5 million a year in business, and they're open seven days a week, and many of them are open 24 hours a day. Chick-fil-A, because it was founded by a man of great faith, a Christian man, said, we're going to take a Sabbath day and we're going to be closed on Sunday. And they have stuck to that to this very day. The average Chick-fil-A store in, in a, you know, a, not a 24-hour day and only six days a week does $6 million a year in business. More than twice what the average McDonald's store does. Now, why is that? Well, you can say their chicken sandwich is better than anybody else. And, you know, granted that. They have a great culture and they do. But I believe it comes back to they're honoring God and putting him first in this way with their time. And God is blessing their socks off. And he does. He, when we honor, it's the same thing with tithing, right? Tithing is a trust builder. We take the first 10% of our income and we give it back to God. And this is a practice that, that God in the Old Testament told his people to do. We give that back to God. And God says, you're going to go further, faster on 90% than you are on 100%. And the math doesn't make sense, but I'm telling you what, if you talk to anybody who is a disciplined tither and or a disciplined, disciplined Sabbath keeper, what you're going to find are people who are you know, rabid fans of these practices because they've seen the blessing, they've seen the plenty, they've seen the provision that comes when we put God first in our time and we put him first in our finances. This is a trust building thing too. So there's a lot of reasons God gave his people the Sabbath. But by the time Jesus shows up 1,200 years later, the religious leaders over time had added all these extra rules and all these extra definitions of what work is to the point that Sabbath had gone from a gift and a blessing. It had gone from a day off for his people to this burden. Like they couldn't do anything. They could only walk so many steps. They couldn't carry, carry this, but they might be able to carry that. Doctors couldn't do any of their work on the Sabbath. They couldn't change a dressing on the Sabbath or anything like that. You couldn't heal on the Sabbath. That goes back to the doctors not being able to, to do their work. Uh, and it was this rule and that rule and this. And they had a, all these rules that governed what you could and could not do. Um, 
One of them was that you couldn't harvest on the Sabbath. And that's, that one applies to what we're going to read today. So go ahead and flip back over to Mark chapter 2. And we're going to pick up in verse 23. And it says this. It says, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? It's unlawful to harvest on the Sabbath. Now, they're not harvesting. They're walking along and picking wheat as they go and throwing the kernels in their mouth. Now, they're not stealing. They didn't have restaurants to go to back then. If they're walking along, it was perfectly okay to grab a handful of wheat out of a wheat field and eat some along the way. That, culturally, that was fine. They weren't stealing. That wasn't the problem. That's not what the religious leaders were worked up about. What they were worked up about was the fact that they gathered that wheat on the Sabbath. And that was work. And so they caught them. They caught them doing something wrong. And Jesus is like, that, really? That's work? Um, he answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. He's referring to uh, something that we find in 1 Samuel chapter 21, a, a story about David, their hero. He's the hero of the nation, King David. And he was on the run at one point and he shows up in the sanctuary of God with his guys and they had been running and they were hungry and starving really. And they come in and the priest is like, man, you guys are in rough shape. Here, take the showbread, which was only to be presented to God and then eaten by the priest. That was the law. And he said, you guys go ahead and eat this. You need this. And nobody has given King David any grief about it. And, um, and Jesus then goes on to say, he's, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, this is an interesting statement. The Sabbath was a gift to people. It wasn't designed to be a burden for people. And in some ways, he's saying the law was a gift to people. It brought order to life and order to society so that families could thrive, so that children could grow up in safe environments, so that, that people could become all they were, were meant to be. The, the law was a gift. It wasn't meant to be a burden, and you've turned it into a burden. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man, he goes on, is Lord even of the Sabbath. And it, again, you know, whenever Jesus pulls out the son of man thing, we, he is referring to himself as the Messiah who was to come. And he is claiming that he is over the Sabbath, which drives the religious leaders absolutely batty. They don't even know what, they don't even know what to do with this. Jesus, in, in a lot of ways, is picking a fight with them. And then if we go on in Mark chapter 3, there's another passage about the Sabbath. It says, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. They believed that, you know, well, it's not a doctor, but he's a healer and that would be work and that would be a problem, right? They're trying to catch him. And so Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of any, everyone. Now, if you've ever seen the movie Braveheart, 
Anyone see the movie Braveheart? All right, one of my favorite scenes in that movie is William Wallace rides down all the, the, all the forces of Scotland are lined up on one side and all the forces of England are lined up across the other side and uh, they're, they're kind of getting ready for battle and, and the Scottish lords are all out front and they're having this conversation and they're like, we're kind of outgunned, I'm not sure we can win this, maybe we can go negotiate and get some more lands uh, and some more power. And uh, William Wallace is kind of in their circle and he just kicks his horse and rides off to the middle of the field. And they're like, where's he going? And his buddy's like, he's going to pick a fight. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's picking a fight with the religious leaders. Stand up. And we know that Jesus is angry because we're going to see that here in a minute. So then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed. It's written all over his face. He was distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. They caught him working on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus would disagree about their definition of work, but that's what that's. And, and they are at this point. I mean, we are nine weeks into this series. We are still in chapter two. Well, we've just crossed over into chapter three. And the religious leaders have positioned themselves against Jesus. They are the enemies of Jesus. And my question for us today is this. How did the most zealous religious, biblically literate, read their Bible every day people end up the enemies of Jesus? How did, how did they end up being on the opposite side of him? How did they, the ones who have been looking for the coming of the Messiah, miss him when he was standing right in front of them? And the answer is kind of obvious, actually. You know, we've been going through Mark passage by passage. But if you step back just, just a little bit, these first two chapters, we see exactly what happened. You know, Jesus begins his ministry. He shows up in Capernaum the first day, and the whole town shows up. Uh, Jesus has crowds following him everywhere. He is the biggest deal ever to happen in their lifetimes. Everybody's talking about Jesus, and nobody is talking about the religious leaders. And the religious leaders are a little bit jealous. Let's just be honest. Then, before he heals the paralyzed guy that they lower down through the roof, he says, your sins are forgiven. Well, that's blasphemy unless you're, the son, unless, unless you're God. And they hadn't decided whether Jesus was God or not yet, so it's blasphemy. And so they're, they're you know, a little bit more, like this guy's questionable. That's heresy. And then he calls Levi, or Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. Well, good, holy, religious people don't hang out with tax collectors, and they don't hang out with their friends, and they're just Jesus at Matthew's house having a party, eating and drinking and being with them and defending it to the religious leaders when they questioned it. They're like, no, 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 you don't, you don't do that. Then his disciples aren't fasting, as Myron covered last week. They're, they're not going along with their fasting rules. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to fast two days a week. It was a tradition that the religious leaders came up with, and everybody just f followed along. 
But Jesus is like, I'm not following your man-made rules. I'm following the Bible. And so he blows it off and they're mad because he is now he's threatening their authority. Right. Then his disciples are picking grain. You know, they're working on the Sabbath. He defends them. They're not really working. They're just eating as they go along. And then finally, Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath. They have a case that they have been building against him. And at this point, their hearts are so hard against Jesus, they can't see that the Son of God is standing right in front of them. So, now you know. And this is not the end of the sermon, because it's not a good sermon unless there's a way that this applies to our life today. And, and, and so, let me ask you that question. How does this apply to our lives today. And I believe there is a warning here for anyone who is a follower of God. And actually, I think there, there are, we can do this whether you're a follower of God, of, of God or not. Now the Pharisees, they didn't mean to be Pharisees. Like back then they were the religious people, right? Today, 2,000 years later, we look back, we use the word Pharisee as you know, they're kind of the villains, you know, cue the, the stormtrooper music, here comes the Pharisees. But back then they were just the religious leaders and they, they were standing against Jesus. And, you know, there are people who I think just like to control other people. And that's a problem. That's a problem. It's not just a religious problem, but it certainly can be a religious problem. So what I want to do is I want to take the rest of our time and I want to look at how to be a Pharisee in 2021. Now, I get it. You don't want to be a Pharisee. We don't want to be a Pharisee, but I'm going to kind of work this backwards. How to be a Pharisee in 2021. So if you will, pull out your travel journal or your notebook, and I want you to write some things down because this is really important. You need to get this. We all need to get this. And the first thing is this. If you want to be a Pharisee in 2021, add rules to God's rules. Add rules to God's rules. They were given uh, the gift of the Sabbath, a day off, and they added all these rules around it. They put up, they figured, well, okay, if this is the, the line we don't want people to cross, then we're going to set up a rule here and a rule here and a rule here and a rule here. That way nobody ever can get too close to the, the rule that they're not supposed to break, right? And so they have all these other rules and they treat them as just important as this one. And that creates all kinds of problems because now they're just following man-made rules and it's a burden on people. I remember reading um, Little House on the Prairie. Anybody ever read the Little House on the Prairie series? Reading it to our kids when they were younger. And one, one of the, 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 the books, they describe Sundays at, on the homestead and the kids were all sitting inside. It was snowing outside and they just wanted to go sled riding. But they just had to sit there and wait for the day to be over. It was like this burden and God gave it to us as a gift to rest and enjoy and recharge and and all these things and I just remember thinking man yeah that's, that's just not the, but that's what they were dealing with as well in uh, in Jesus's day so uh, you know it's well-intentioned we don't you know they don't they didn't want people to break God's law so they they help God out a little bit by adding some more and we do this too right we do this with our kids we don't want our kids to do something because it's bad for them or it's dangerous. If you're, if you're Christian, 
you know, it's very clearly in the New Testament, it gives us guidelines for sexuality and not having sex outside of marriage. And that's a completely different sermon, but we know that, that purity now will, will lead to intimacy later and lack of purity now will jack up your intimacy later because you bring all kinds of baggage with you into your marriage. So we don't want our kids having sex before marriage, right? So what do we do? We say, well, that's this barrier, but we're gonna put one up in front. You can't dance and you can't go to rated R movies. And you can't do this and you can't do that. And all of a sudden we have all these man-made rules that aren't in the Bible anywhere trying to help God out. God doesn't need our help. And you know what happens when we do that? What happens is because kids are kids, they climb over our barriers. And every time they climb over a barrier, they learn that that barrier wasn't really important anyway. So by the time they get to the one you don't want them to cross, they think it doesn't matter anyway. You know, it's the kids who grew up in legalistic households and faiths that end up rebelling and walking away from God in greater numbers, or they stick around and they pretend. They have a double life. They have their religious life, but then they have whatever going on on the side. And it's not healthy. It's not what Jesus wanted for us. See, when you become more religious than God, when you have more rules than God, you're in a dangerous, dangerous place. And God talks to this. He says, don't add things to my word. In, in Proverbs 30, verse 5, he says, every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Don't add. He doesn't need our help. Now, does that mean we don't have other rules to manage our households and our family and our kids? We do. Yeah, absolutely. But when it comes to the word of God, we don't need to be legalistic. And the problem with legalism and dealing with people who are legalistic is that it's always based on a Bible verse, right? It's always, there's always, like you get an argument with somebody who's a legalist and, and, and it's just like, oh, you're wearing me out, bro. Because there's always a Bible verse for it. But let me give you an example how this works. We the Bible verse that says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Familiar with that one? Right. So what Paul was addressing was an issue in the church in Corinth, which Corinth was a pagan city. People in Corinth grew up going to pagan temples. Part of the, the pagan religion was sleeping with, with uh, pagan temple prostitutes. And so people start meeting Jesus and coming to faith. And some of them kept going back to the temple prostitutes. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't go to temple prostitutes. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You don't want to join God with a prostitute. That's crazy. But what do we do with it, this verse? We make it about smoking. Well, you can't smoke. Smoking's a sin because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It had nothing to do with that. Now, smoking's stupid. I would never recommend it, but I can't tell you that there's a Bible verse against smoking and certainly not this one. Or we make it about eating ice cream or cupcakes. We, it's Christian fat shaming. Like your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You, you know, you need to go on a diet and start exercising because Jesus said so. No, he didn't. Now, is it wise to be healthy? Absolutely. Please do that. But I'm not going to hit you down with a Bible verse on that one or make it a religious issue. You know, we take the Bible verse, don't cause your brother to stumble, to mean don't ever do anything that might offend somebody somewhere. 
And, uh, you know, if you read the New Testament, especially the epistles of Paul, Paul is about the freedom that we have in Christ. Or the, 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 uh, the verse that's, then there's several, don't get drunk. Uh, and we take that to mean don't drink alcohol ever. Nobody ever should. You know, the, the, not too long ago, I was uh, coming out of the city building downtown, and there was a guy who recognized me as the pastor of the vineyard. And he introduced himself, and he said, he said, I got a bone to pick with you. And I'm like, well, what's going on? And he said, I heard that you teach from the, the pulpit that uh, drinking alcohol is okay. And I said, well, um, I said, I would never encourage anyone to drink alcohol from the pulpit or anywhere else. That's a personal decision. I said, but I can't preach from the pulpit or anywhere else that the Bible prohibits the consumption of alcohol because it doesn't. Jesus drank alcohol. And it is throughout the scripture. And, and, and so we had kind of, it, it got a little heated, not on my side, but on his side. Turns out he was a recovering alcoholic and he went to a church that said all alcohol is bad and because of his background, all alcohol, and clearly he should not ever drink, right? If you're an alcoholic, you should never touch alcohol. A couple weeks ago, I had breakfast with a guy who uh, is wrestling with alcoholism. He's, he's kind of at the beginning of it, right? And, and, and his issue is if he drinks one beer, uh, he wants to drink 20. And he has some control over it, but I'd say probably one time out of three times that he drinks, he loses control and just goes completely out of control and, and drinks way too much. And, um, and as we talked, I explained to him, I said, well, this is, this is what happens in this situation. Right now, it's one time out of three. But if you feed it, it will be two times out of three. And if you continue to feed it, it'll be three times out of three. And it will take over your life and it will steal from you everything that matters to you. Turns out he comes from an alcoholic family. There's a genetic, we know there's a genetic predisposition to alcoholism. It's just a bad idea, right? And so I would say to him, or if you're in a similar situation, or if you can't get through the week without having a drink every day after work, that's another indication that you're headed in the wrong direction, that you're probably dealing with alcoholism of some sort that you probably shouldn't drink. And that's what I told him. I said, I, I, I said look, I can't, I can't tell you there's a Bible verse that says you should never drink alcohol. But I can tell you based on what you told me, you should never drink alcohol. And I walked him through. I didn't explain it this way at the time, but I'm going to explain it this way to you and get your pen out. You need to write this down because this applies to all areas of our life. It's called, I call it the what do I do filter. Go ahead and write down what do I do filter. And there are four questions you need to ask. And the first one is this, what does the Bible say about it? If there is a clear directive in scripture, do that. The scripture is the word of God and we wanna follow it, right? And so do what the Bible says. But if there's not a clear directive in the Bible, then you need to ask, what is the Holy Spirit saying? When we got to the end of our conversation, he said, you know, I knew coming in what I needed to do. I just didn't wanna do it because I like beer a lot. And uh, I was like, well, yeah, I, I get it. He goes, but, you know, I know, know what I need to do. He already knew. The Holy Spirit was already impressing upon his heart what he needed to do. The third question is this. Is it wise? 
Is it wise? Is it, is it wise to continue to drink if you know you have a genetic predisposition towards alcoholism, if you know that this thing just grows and takes more and more, if you know that you're going to grow further out of control and potentially risk your marriage and your finances and your family and everything, is it really worth, is it wise? No, it's stupid. And then the fourth question is this, is it love? I asked him, well, you know, how does your wife feel about it? She hates it when I drink. All right, well, is that loving? No. It's pretty selfish. You know, he said, oh, well, we hope to have kids. And I'm like, so you have a ge genetic predisposition. Your children probably will have that same genetic predisposition. Is, is it loving or wise to drink in front of them as they're growing up? No, it's not. It's not worth it. It's just not worth it. So what does the Bible say? What is the Holy Spirit saying? Is it wise and is it loving? And you'll, I mean, every time there's clarity there. And you know what? God would rather have us mature in our decision-making with our hearts towards him than follow a long list of rules. He wants us to grow up. And he wants us to... Now, now there are things that are clear, cut and dry, right and wrong in the Bible. So don't hear me saying there aren't. There are. We need to follow those things, but there's so much of life that lives outside of that. And when we start adding those extra rules, something happens in us. Our hearts harden a little bit, and we begin to judge the people around us. Which brings me to our second way to be a Pharisee in 2020, and that's this. Use Scripture to find faults with others. Use Scripture to find faults with others. Like I read the scripture, oh, this applies to my husband or this applies to my friend or this applies to my mother. Yeah, this is for them, right? And Jesus addressed this with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees of his day. He said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is talking to religious leaders. He's like, you have hardened your hearts to the point that you can't even see the Son of God standing in front of you. And you have a blind spot that's bigger than anything you're pointing out in Matthew the tax collector or anybody else. And they had their list of rules and they had their scriptures memorized and they, they, it had made them proud. Like they knew everything and they began to judge everyone around them and they couldn't even see their own need for forgiveness, for a savior. You know, if you sit in church on Sundays and, or whatever day you, you do church, and you listen to the message and you're like elbowing your spouse or thinking, boy, I know five people who need to hear this message. And you're not thinking about how it applies to your own life. You're in dangerous territory. When we compare ourselves to others or we can't even see our own faults because we can see everybody else's in Scripture, we're in dangerous territory. You know, I, I, I can't tell you how many Christians I've heard over the years going, well, I'm just at a, at a higher level than, than, you know, some of these other people. Or I read my Bible every day for an hour and, you know, I, most people in the church don't, you know, or, or whatever. You know, I know this and they don't know that. And we grow proud with our practices and proud with our knowledge. And that is dangerous, dangerous territory. 
because you're on your way to being a Pharisee. The third thing you need to do if you want to be a Pharisee in 2021, and again, you do not, but if you do, love being right more than you love people. Love being right more than you love people. The Apostle Paul wrote some of the most profound words, I think, in the history of the world in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 2. He says this, he says, if, you, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, in other words, if I can have the Bible memorized and know what it means and have all my theology correct and I'm right about my assumptions and all of that, everything is good and in place and I got it all together. And if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. It matters Nothing. If all that just makes me proud and arrogant and judgy of the people around me, I've missed the point altogether. I'm nothing. Clanging gong, he goes on to say. Religious leaders loved following the Sabbath and all their rules for the Sabbath, all their extra rules, more than they loved the guy who needed his hand healed. I needed his hand healed, and there's a healer who's going to do it. It's no work to just say, reach out your hand. But, oh, it is, technically. You know, Jesus said the two most important things we can do on this earth are to love God with everything we have and love other people. And that's a heart issue. And so if we're increasing in knowledge and our heart is decreasing in capacity to love, we're on the wrong track. We're on the track the Pharisees were on. And here's the thing, nobody sets out to be a Pharisee. It, you just kind of end up there. You know, you, you go down this, this road, you start doing these things and they're religious things, so they seem right. And, and, and you're right because you're reading it right and, and all of that. And all of a sudden, you love being right more than you love people. It just kind of happens. You make a few extra rules for others to follow. When you read the scripture, you see other people's faults. Fault, and you fall in love with the rules rather than people. And you wake up one day and you realize, I'm on the other side of Jesus. It happens all the time. And I don't want it to happen to you, but here's what I know. Some of us are, are there. As I'm preaching this message, you're like, yeah, this is me. I'm not quite sure how I ended up here, but I don't want to be here. And good. And I want to encourage you today to take some time, maybe get on your knees and ask God for forgiveness. Ask God to renew the love in your heart. Ask him to give you the eyes to see where you've added extra things, where you've become about religion instead of a relationship with God. Do that. Repent and pray and spend some time with him today. Because Jesus came to set you free from that stuff. Jesus came to set us free. You know, when he had his disciples gathered around him in Matthew chapter 11, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. He wasn't like the Pharisees of his day. And he says, and you'll find rest for your souls. And then he says something very profound. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A rabbi's yoke was their teaching. 
See, all the other rabbis of his day had all these extra rules that they were piling on people. And Jesus was like, no, we're just going to go back to the Bible. We're going to do that. And comparatively, this is a lot easier and a lot lighter. You don't have to walk around under the weight of legalism. He came to set you free from it. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5.1 said this. He said, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And then he says, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Don't pile all the rules back on again. You have been set free. And I believe he set us free so that we could love him and love God without all this weight on our shoulders. That we could love him and we could love others without all this weight on our shoulders. And here's what I know. There's some people watching today. And you've never experienced that freedom. And he wants you to have it. He wants you to live a life of reckless love for other people, of of passionate love for him, a relationship with your heavenly father, of freedom. And you're not free on the inside because you've never come to him and said, I need your freedom. I need you to set me free. And I want to invite you to do that today. I want to invite you to come to him today in prayer. And and you can pray something along these lines. Just Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins to pay for all the things that I've done wrong. And I need forgiveness. Would you set me free? Would you set me free from my sin and my guilt and my shame? And then pray something like this. Say, Say, would you come and live in my heart? Would you would you facilitate a relationship with the Father? And would you lead my life? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.